You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. I have a great guest tonight, straight from Panama, and uh, his name is Sam Sucre, and he is from uh, Natural Tanks. That is uh, his business, and we're going to talk about uh, basically uh, Panama, you know, what he's working with in Panama, and uh, the future of uh, the importation of, of Panamanian species into the U.S. to start a new sustainable program. And uh, we're going to get all that and a lot more. Sam's got quite a bit uh, we're going to discuss. But uh, beforehand, I want to just do, real quick, I just want to thank everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. Great way to support the show. Take a few minutes, leave me a nice five-star review. Always appreciate that. And another way to support the show, of course, is to consider becoming a patron on Patreon. I have a $3 tier and a $5 tier. And at the $5 tier, you get a shout-out at the beginning of an upcoming episode, which is pretty cool. And other than that, best way, of course, is always just listen. You know, I, I love getting feedback from you guys. I'm happy everyone's enjoying the show. So uh, I'm if you can't tell, I'm really excited because Sam and I have been waiting for a really long time to be able to get together. And uh, he's here. I've got him on the phone straight from Panama. So... Why don't we get into it, Sam? Welcome. How are you doing tonight? Hey, thanks, Dan. Well, this is super cool to be in your podcast. I've been looking forward to this. Thanks a lot. Me too. Yeah, I've uh, I've been looking forward to this for like the past month and a half since we first spoke. Yeah, yeah. Same for me. <laughs> so I'll tell you what. Why don't we begin at the beginning? Why don't you tell us about yourself so what were your first experiences like with amphibians and what led you to where you are today oh that's actually a good question you know um so my my first experiences with amphibians were on conservation and the research i started working for stry smithsonian tropical research institute that's in panama and uh, i was working for the herpetological circle of panama and i got involved into research you know this happened when i was uh, just out of high school as a volunteer and and I just liked amphibians and I stayed there you know and, and I wanted to work to, with different pro, uh, programs like the creation of PARC which is Panama Amphibian Rescue Center and then I uh, started uh, you know knowing other people in Panama that were into conservation and research with amphibians and then I went and helped a lot at El Valle Amphibian Conservation Center which is EVAC and they even went on to be a, a like co-founder and part of the uh, board of directors of EVAC 2.0, we call it now, because uh, we made like a new legal structure for EVAC. I'm the current secretary of EVAC. And, and that is actually a crucial part on how I got to where I am right now. You know, we got a project like EVAC that has the breeding of Panama's most iconic species of animal is the golden frog. It's an endemic species of Atelopus. Uh, that last time was seen uh, was seen by uh, actually my best friend Edgardo Griffith. He's a director of, of EVAC. A shout out to Edgardo. He works a lot for amphibian conservation. Um, so yeah, it was seen by him in 2009. You know, so it's over 10 years now. We haven't seen you know our iconic species. This is in our passport. You know, it's, it's, it's little kids learn about this since kinder. You know, in in Panama this frog and you know it's just gone and the ones that we have less left in panama are in iva uh, they're being bred there and you know it's a place that's struggling so much for funding for uh, institutional support and you know you at one point i had to move when, when we're doing this iva 2.0 and moving it and, and whatnot i had to move to a horse ranch 
for example, and every almost every single cent like I could spare, like to not leave the bare minimum I need for my living, would go to creating the EVAC 2.0 and the cost of EVAC. Carl and I were doing the same. And you know, it was a massive effort. And then what you realize is that in countries like Panama or developing countries, you know, you're doing something that the government should be doing. But you have such weak institutions that they don't even know it. You know, the people in charge don't know that you are protecting a species that by law they have to protect and that you don't have funds for it and that the government has uh, to help you do it by, by different laws and give you funding for it. And they almost use you like a commercial or propaganda for them. Whenever they do something, they take pictures, they make videos, and then you don't get the funds, you don't get the support. Every single process, legal process you have to do takes way longer than it should. And that took me to this uh, epiphany. You know, I said, you know, why to do conservation? You know, to, to, to do something that everyone should be doing. I can't have, you know, a, a life with dignity, you know, earn my money for me and my family and, and be well and, and not being like struggling just to get every single cent just to save a species you know, everyone should be doing it. And I decided I was going to make my own commercial uh, project because there's this misconception, especially, you can see this, especially in developing countries, at least in Latin America. Uh, if you have a commercial project, it's, it's like either you're doing conservation or you have a commercial project. You know, it's not like commercial projects can and have to do conservation also. So I created natural tanks with the mindset of, you know, I could earn a living, I could, grow faster than if I'm an NGO and look for donations, you know, it's like begging for money. And I could fund my own conservation projects and help fund the conservation projects that already exist. And that's how natural tanks really came to be, you know. So it's been tough. It's been really difficult. Uh, I just did my first export in November last year. It took me three years to get to that point. A massive effort, especially with this um, pandemic stuff. But in the end, you know, it's a project that you don't have the steering committee, you don't have this uh, board of directors. It's like a faster way to get funding and you can still do any all the things that you want to do with research and conservation. And I think that this conservation through commercialization idea, I think it's the only viable way in developing countries like Panama to do something. You know, otherwise you're attached to foreign institutions or attached to paying for funds all the time. And really that's not efficient, you know? And I think that Natural Tanks has a lot to prove still in Panama of how it works. And I know we got other, other projects like in Ecuador and Colombia that are doing the same, but my project is heavily focused on in situ conservation and research and getting students involved. For example, we don't have, uh, specialized bed, uh, amphibian beds in Panama. So I have this program of volunteers of veterinary school in Panama. We only have one. And they're learning about amphibians. They know that this exists now and that there's a demand. Panama has two big conservation projects and we don't have, you know, local beds that can, uh, you know, fill in these uh, job spaces. 
And Panama is interesting because in the case of veterinary, it's a protective profession. If you're not Panamanian, you cannot work as a veterinary in Panama. But we don't have a veterinary for every single type of animal, you know. And I think that a project like mine has a lot to offer uh, to a country like Panama. And I think it's a model that should be replicated uh, in as many countries as possible. Because, you know, when you are in charge of getting your own funding, when you are in charge of your own operation and you don't depend on institutions, on receiving donations... You know, everything is just so much smoother. You can just invest whatever you want. If you want to put 80% of what you're doing into conservation, nobody's going to tell you not to do it, you know? And I, I think that uh, that's how I got to this point today, out of that realization. It's interesting. I don't think that people really appreciate the amount of work that private individuals put into efforts like this. I mean, like you said, just something so uh, trying to secure funding like you said, taking it into you know a, a private capacity, you don't have to go through a board of directors. You don't have to get approval for that. You can basically make your own decisions, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and 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 you don't depend on you know begging you because it's looking for donation is like a full time job. So aside from the responsibilities you have of a conservation project, you know if you're an NGO and you depend on donations. It's like you have another full-time job, which is looking for donations. And the, the sad part of that is that that part-time job, of the, I mean, that full-time job of uh, looking for donations, is, there is no guarantee pay. You don't know if you're going to get it. You don't know if you're going to, uh, you know, uh, get the, the, the amount you needed, you know. And, and I think that that is a huge problem in, in, in countries where, you know, we don't have huge amount of resources that people can just put into whatever animal they like, you know, and, and it sounds sad. That's the reality of developing countries. Tell us a little bit more about Park and EVAC. We, we touched on it earlier when you were telling us how you got involved with everything in Panama, but can you give us a little bit more information about what happens at Park and at EVAC? Well, now it's really kind of EVAC uh, 2.0. Just run us through kind of like what's going on there day by uh, day to day activities. Well, yeah. Uh, so park and, and Iwak are two projects in Panama that uh, work for uh, in ex situ conservation with different species of amphibians. Uh, when I worked for park, it was, uh, you know, it, it was like um, with the building, the starting, the first collections of rocks in the wild and whatnot. And now I'm obviously more involved with EVAC, so I can tell you more about EVAC. Park has changed a lot, they even moved, so I cannot give you the details on that. Also, Smithsonian is uh, very reserved with the info. But in EVAC, I can tell you, you know, we have a pot that are full of our frogs. Uh, we work with several species. Obviously, we work with the Panamanian golden frog, which is that the local species I talked to you about. And we have, you know, sister species of that. And uh, Basically, you know, we have a small team that's at Iraq at Valle doing a lot of work. Uh, it's monumental. Uh, it's also a huge weight they carry because they have this important species for us. You know, it's, it's a huge responsibility that you have if you're working with a species that's so important for your country. You know, it's a cultural symbol of your country. And, you know, it's, it's, 
I think that nowadays, you know, the most important thing I can tell you about Iraq is that, yeah, Iraq, we do the job. I'm not as involved as I, I was some years ago because I'm more into natural tanks at the moment. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a lot of work. It's a hard work that it's done happily. Uh, Edgardo and his wife, Heidi, have, uh, you know, basically given their life to this project. And still, I think it's a bit frustrating sometimes, you know, and I don't want to speak for them, but in my sense, you know, and I've done, I don't know, maybe 10% of what they've done in their life. I think it's frustrating because you don't get recognition, you don't get the support for the weight you're carrying. And in that sense, you know, even though nobody is making your pointing a gun at you to, hey, let's do this project and, you know, you're doing it because you want to, because you care about uh, these species of frogs. Still, uh, I think nobody should carry that much weight with all the cons and none of the pros, you know. Uh, so, yeah, basically, you know, like C2 projects in Panama uh, are pretty famous. I think IVAC is one of the most uh, famous projects around the world because of the time they've had and because many world firsts of species that have been bred here, also because Panama managed to create in an emergency situation when the Kitri just hit Panama, you know, a, a project that, uh, you know, our frogs weren't being exported to another country to be bred. They were being bred here, you know, and I think that's a monumental, also it's it's a monumental uh, milestone for a country like Panama, Central America. So at the moment, my role with EVAC is, uh, I'm the secretary, so it's more like, uh, uh, legal function, and I'm not involved at the moment with the day-to-day -day, uh, projects of Iraq, you know. And also, I'm trying to support them getting funding the most I can, especially from natural tanks, because it's really, really tough. You know, I, I don't know if you breed frogs or not, but I take it you at least know a lot of people that do. You know, breeding frogs is super expensive, and these projects are not commercial. So yeah, I think that the main issue uh, with this project is getting funding, especially with Iraq. You know, in the case of Park, they got the back of an American institution, which is Smithsonian. You know, it's basically their project. But in the case of Iraq, it's an NGO met, made and led by Panamanians. Why? I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. Um, when we when we think about funding and we things like that. Again, people often, I guess, underestimate the value that private individuals have and the, the whole role of this. But like you said, it's an extremely in, in, in expensive endeavor. So you're kind of working on a, a, a different angle about this. Um, so we're talking about legal responsible trade as a means of conservation, right? That's kind of what you're, you're working towards as well? Yes. Okay. Yeah, conservation through commercialization, yeah. Tell, tell us about that. I'm I'm curious to hear what you have to say about um, about uh, conservation through commercialism. Well, you know, as I told you before, you know, I think this is the best route in countries like Panama, developing countries, or some call it third world countries, because of the lack of uh, strong institutions, institutional support, and uh, getting local funding, even if it's through private donations. You know, there are countries that are developing so they don't have that much resources and i think that also it you know i think that 
frogs, especially species we have in Panama, for example, we have the Ophaga genus, we have the Atelopus genus in Panama. These are frogs that are highly priced in the pet trade. You know, we got some Ophagas that can be sold over a thousand euros in Europe, each individual. And, you know, most of the trade, or at least of Panamanian species, was being fueled by the illegal pet trade. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, these frogs are so expensive. You know, people pay a lot for these frogs. Why can't they, you know, create the resources to help their own species? So uh, in, in the end, I think that the basis of conservation through commercialization is a fancy way to say, you know, even if you have a, a private endeavor or a commercial project, you still have to, you know, everyone depends on the environment and you still need to put some money back into it. You know, it doesn't matter what you do. And in my case, you know, I like frogs. I like working with, with frogs. And I think that it just makes sense that frogs can pay for their own conservation. And that's what I'm trying to do. And the, the other side of this is it's the, the, the genetic resource that developing countries have. So developing countries have the tendency to be the most diverse countries in the planet, you know, highest biodiversity zones, tropical areas. Uh, then people don't really appreciate this because it, this, is, this, this is no use to them or at least no practical use in the sense that, you know, if you live in the field or, or you live like in the countryside or in a rural area and you earn a lot less than a dollar a day, and then the government comes and make this reserve and say, you know, this forest, now you cannot use it. You cannot hunt. You cannot tear down trees, whatever. The only reason they would protect it is if that would, you know, mean something to them. But they still have their daily struggles, uh, you know, very poor communities. And if a poacher comes and tells them, you know, I'm going to pay you, I think you should this is probably going to be, I think it's our, ne our, our next topic, but I'm going to, you know, uh, scratch that surface. Somebody comes and tells you, you know, I'm going to pay you 50 cents per frog. This frog that they sell a thousand euros in Europe, uh, you know, they're just going to sell them as many as they can because they don't see a value in keeping them in their habitat. They see a value in the 50 cents each frog's going to give them. And it is sad, yeah, but it's true and i think that using our resources in a sustainable way and showing the people the real value and how to sustainable exploit them will actually stop the illegal trade of of frogs because people now will know the value of you know if and this is something i i'm trying to do is creating this campaign called stop wildcat trade if the only means for exporting a species from a country is that it was captive bred, then that means that each country has people working and earning money out of sustainably breeding their animals for export and not selling them just at 50 cents, but having a really dignified life, selling them at, you know, the prices that the market withholds, you know. And that way people are going to start caring about their natural resources and the genetic resource because now they can see a value, you know. I don't know if I explained my idea well, uh, but I think that, you know, having a project like mine 
it's not only for me to do my conservation job, but I think it's also to show countries like Panama, you know, that we have been basically giving away and destroying probably our, our you know, our most precious, precious resource. You know, we're not, we're not an oil-rich company. I mean, a country, we're not, a, you know, Panama has the Panama Canal and, and our biodiversity. And I think that if you have an endemic species, it's something that only your country can offer. You have no competition for that. But if you're just giving away and then somebody else breeds it in another country, nothing ever returns to Panama. You know, just the first batch and that's it. And I think that there's there's something, uh, you know, it, it, it's difficult to explain this, but I think that, that there is a way to do so. And I think it's by giving the example, you know, it's creating job opportunities in my own country using our genetic resource in a sustainable way and reinvesting in conservation. I, I think it's a win-win for everyone. And I also see this as the only route that the pet trade has left. Because as we well know, the pet trade is under constant attack by different groups, you know, animal uh, lover groups and animalist groups, the vegan groups, you know, and, and a lot of lawmakers saying, you know, this is an environmental problem. And wildcat trade is not sustainable. There's so many problems with how the pet trade has been behaving. And that, that there's a lot of people advocating for total cancellation, you know? And I think that if pet traders don't want this to be shot, they have to get in the same ship that is, you know, a sustainable way that reinvest in conservation. And basically, that's it. You know, you have to be ethical. You have to be... Uh, if something if something is helping you, you know, feed your family. Let's say you have a pet store. It's only right to help, you know, those wild populations of species that are giving you, you know, your your leave. And I think that for me, it's, it's not only logical a conclusion I got to. I think it's the only way to look at it, you know. And and that takes me to the second uh, point of this. You know, everybody talks about yeah. Uh, conservation through commercialization, whatever. But I think that the main point of this, and this is what I, I don't see a lot of people making a point on it, and this is something I stress a lot. It's about the wild population. People think that having a frog in captivity and breeding it is already conservation. And it's not really, you know, the people have this tendency to think and you get all these puris on how to make frogs and they want new genetic pool and whatever to keep them straight because people have this fantasy in their minds that the frogs they have in their living room or in their house terrarium are going to save one day that species. And the chances of that happening are like zero to none, especially for species in countries like Panama that have their own conservation project. Uh, what I mean to say with this is that the most efficient way to do conservation is actually investing or reinvesting uh, some of the money you earn by selling these animals into projects that help the wild population of those species. And not thinking that because you have them, now you have like a mini art in your house, so you're doing your part. Because the species in your living room have no impact on the actual environment or in the natural 
habitat where these frogs and other animals are disappearing. And that takes me to my last point, conservation to commercialization. You know, I think that it's not only people that are store owners or have a project, a breeding project or a frog farm like I have. I think it goes, you know, all the way down to the customer. You know, when you buy a frog, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of merit to how the general customer behaves now when it comes to pet uh, rate. You know, before they just buy an animal they like, and that's it. You know, now people study a bit of the animal. They ask at least if it's, you know, captive bred. Uh, like now people know that that is an issue, you know, where it comes from. Is it sustainable? But you have to take it one step forward. It's not only if it's a captive bred animal, you know, I think that you have to ask. So the money I'm giving to this, some part is going to help the wild population of this species, you know. Is is ha me having this species as a pet or in my frog collection or iguana collection having a real impact? Like, what does this store do when it comes to conservation? You know, are you just making money out of this species and that's it and just forgetting about it? Or are you actually helping the wild populations which are the populations that really matter? And yeah, I think that it's a discussion that uh, is not being uh, talked about that much. I think it's a topic that's very sensitive to some people. But if if you understand what I'm saying, you surely see that the pet trade can be an awesome, incredible ally to conservation. You know, because of its. Uh, it has a it has a high revenue, has a big funding capacity, and right now instead of being a great ally for conservation, it's being seen as a problem for conservation. So my objective is to change that. I agree one hundred and ten percent, and it's interesting. It's almost as if it's almost as though there there's there's two worlds. There is the the old way where everything was pulled out of the wild it was unsustainable for for populations of species and as you said it was very easy for someone to come in and pull frogs out of the wild smuggle them for for pennies on the dollar and that went on for a very long time and now we have captive bred populations in countries like the US Canada Europe etc and we don't need to pull from the wild to the extent that we did in the past. And now it's almost as though the hobby has become this autonomous thing that can sort of exist on its own without anything coming in from the wild with the exception of, of certain things. Um, but you're right. I, it's, it's such a hard sell because people don't understand that frogs can be a natural resource the same way as anything else can be, the same way that timber can be, the same way that, that fruits could be, the same way that manufacturing could be, anything. And at least in my opinion, and I'm, I'm assuming it's yours as well, you're more, likely get, you're more likely to get funding from a business that's looking to make use of that natural resource rather than someone who, you know, just depending on just charitable donations for you know, how, how far can you possibly go with that? So I, I totally see your point, And I think that you explained it very well. I mean, even when you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, the, uh, the hashtag, um, what was it? Stop wild quarter. Stop and, wild quarter. and yeah. 
I mean, at least here in the U.S., the the general consensus, to me at least, seems to be everyone wants to focus with with captive bred. You know, whether it's captive bred stateside or whether it's captive bred like w- what you're doing in Panama, and there really shouldn't be much of a need for wild caught anymore. But you're right. I I don't understand why there's still this stigma. I mean, even when you even when you use the word wildlife trade. It has such a negative connotation, and, and people make it out as if by default. But I don't understand why. You know, I don't understand why. It's because we, and I say we because now I'm part of it, but Patriot have behaved really bad. It have caused a lot of oh, environmental damage to the world. You know, it's that what you were saying. You know, it used to be a lot of wild caught. The impacts of that were still leaving it. You know, just because some countries and some markets are shifting into more active bread doesn't mean that the damage is gone and there is almost no effort for the people from the people that cause this damage to revert it you know and, and, and that's that's actually the problem and um you know I'm, I'm getting into this pet trade boat knowing this trying to change it and i think that you know everyone has to follow this and, and try to save the pet trade if you really care about it you know because i fully understand when there's protests in UK saying we want to ban all pet trade and all imports and export to the UK, for example. We were seeing that about a year ago. I understand their point fully. You know, I don't think it's the only solution, but I can see why they are thinking that way. And uh, it's what I'm telling you, you know, now people are focusing on whether it's captive or not. People should focus on what is it's, it's like what buying this how or, or having this aspect, how does it help the wild conservation? I think we have to get far beyond just, you know, stopping at uh, is it captive or not? Because there is a lot of damage to be fixed by the pet trade already. And, and let's not even get into the topic of invasive species. And well, I think in the United States, especially in states like Florida, you guys are experts on this because, you know, the, it's been, you know, it's also about responsible pet keeping, you know, and people just buy pets to release them. So there are some pets that just shouldn't be sold in different parts of the world. And, and the pet hasn't care about any of that, you know, it's all about the money or, or that's how it's been before. And I think that it needs a profound change or else it's just going to cease to exist. Sometimes certain practices, I guess, whatever you'd call it, kind of need to make over because when, when you mention something like this to someone who's not in this, com- in this community, in this universe that uh, all of us kind of live in here, it's a hard sell because people don't understand, well, you know, wh- why are you taking these things out of the West? Well, we're not taking them out of the wild. We're using captive breeding so that we don't have to do that and we're putting money back into protecting their habitat. And the people don't seem to, to get that. I mean, here, here's here's a, just a, an analogy about how money for conservation can come from what you would seeming what you would seemingly think to be an unlikely source. So uh, here in New York, the DEC, and this is a figure from the DEC, um, which is the Department of Environmental Conservation. Every year in New York in New York State, five hundred thousand deer hunters contribute one point five billion dollars to the state's economy through hunting-related expenses, and over $35 million from the uh, licenses and whatnot to support management activities. So no one would, th- the average person wouldn't think that hunters, anglers, fishermen, hikers, etc., 
you wouldn't think that hundreds would be such a substantial portion of financing for the state's natural resources, for the state's you know natural areas, and they are. So this, by the same logic, it's the the, the pet trade is going to be the biggest consumer of something like this, and at the same time, funnel a substantial amount of money back into con- back into conserving the source that it came from in the first place. Yeah, and, and I think that proving that point is basically at this point, you know, I'm talking about a global scale and with all this movement I mentioned, uh, I think that proving that point is the safest bet for the pet trade in general, not just amphibian or fish trade, you know, anything. Because, uh, you know, if you have a local fish store selling fish, you know, yeah, how does that help? You know, why is it worth the while? have a pet in your living room you know an exotic pet you know what just for your amusement or which is nothing wrong with that but is it having a greater purpose also and, and i can tell you you know being in panama uh, it's a, a biological hotspot with so many endangered species there's a need for funding for many different organizations here that work with different uh, groups of animals are they being you know helped by People that sell that type of animals, well, most of the times they don't, they aren't. And I think this is a norm for uh, Latin American countries at least. Is the frog hobby something that people are aware of at all in Panama? I mean, just out of curiosity, does anyone in Panama normally just keep frogs as, as pets? There's so many or? few people. There's many few people. You know, I, I had maybe like 10 local sales in three years. You know, I depend on exportation. Panama is not the country that is so much into that. Well, you know, it definitely has a potential for growing. Uh, but I think that, you know, it has to do with it, it's our own resources, what we have here, and people just don't value it. They don't know. They don't, we don't know what we have. We, we don't know how lucky we are to have all, all the species. Also, uh, it, at some point, you know, it, Sucky people just started getting frogs just to keep them in the living. You know, they don't need any additional uh, incentive to for frogs to go extinct in Panama. But that's why I sell the frogs locally in Panama really cheap compared to what they are sold uh, outside. And it's not because I'm scamming exporters. It's because I don't want now to start a movement of people just while catching their animals to have them in their living room because now they see they're expensive you know so it's it's also it's it could it could backfire if you don't manage that you know and you have to be able to think about the wild populations in order to get to these conclusions and you know do this stuff so so even if panama had someday a big you know movement of amphibian prop keeping hobby it wouldn't represent to me, you know, a huge, uh, yeah, you know, cash flow or anything that will help to fund many things because I don't think that the idea is to, you know, make people start catching stuff they think is just expensive, which is what usually happens. Yeah, because most of the time people ask me about it, so you read frogs, you have this frog farm, whatever, they're like, what? And really, and people buy this outside and export frogs and they can't believe it you know <laughs> they're like oh it's just a frog and 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 
you know, if, if you, you don't do environmental education, you don't. So, so the people have sold frogs, for example, have created this group, uh, WhatsApp group now. They made an Instagram. It's very cool. And they uh, also talk about not only how to keep the frog, but about, you know, why you shouldn't catch them in the wild and the, pro the frogs are facing. And whenever there's someone new into the group, they tell them all of this. And, you know, I, I mean, I cannot be accountable for what everybody else does, but at least I'm trying that that doesn't happen at the same time that it make the hobby grow, you know. Also, Panama has kind of a ban on the import of frogs. So our equivalent of U.S. Fish and Wildlife generally would not allow for an import of frogs because we don't want to bring more pathogens like chytrid fungus or ranavirus and further endanger our species. So the only species of frogs, in theory, that would be able to be sold in Panama are local species that are being bred. And the only farm right now is mine. So I don't think uh, there's so much of a frog uh, keeping hope in Panama at the moment. It definitely can grow. And that's something I'm, you know, always thinking on how I can help that be better and, and sustainable. That's an interesting angle. I didn't even think about that. The, the, you know, it's it's so many things you have to think about when, when you're down in, in Panama or, or the countries that, that really need conservation action. You know, it's it's very different, many things from how people imagine it in, in, in other countries, you know. And, you know, being here like on site, on the ground, there's so many things, so many factors, so many stuff. It's just crazy. Everything you do, you have to carefully think about it because it can easily just go wrong and backfire at you and have the exact same opposite uh, effect that you want. Yeah, it's got to be very challenging. I, I want to get into the first export and what your immediate plans are with that, because I know you've partnered with some people in the U.S., but can you tell us about some of the species that you're working with now and what, um, I mean, ha well, how do you source your frogs? Like, what's your breeding process like and how do you operate your facilities? So I have I have this method. I, I, I usually collect uh, very few parentals. Uh, so, for example, we have species like Pumilio, strawberry poison dart frog. Uh, Panama has a lot of different morphs and localities. I usually ask, you know, like once once per year, maybe two times a year. I ask like for twelve, maybe twenty, twenty-four individuals to collect wild. And what I do is I get, you know, from different localities, I get like two pairs, maybe three pairs, and out of that, I start. Uh, you know, my breeding project. And the reason I do this is because I want to have as slow impact as I can. So the drawbacks is that you have kind of a slow start. You know, the first year, year and a half, when you're making your F1, you won't have that many numbers because you started with very few. But in two years, you have, you know, 100 individuals out of F2. and some people have told me about concerns like genetic pool, for example, because it seems like a bottleneck, you know, getting so few individuals. But the point is that if you want to increase your genetic pool, you can just ask for another permit five years later, 
of six more and you collect six more individuals from the wild, that's it, you know, and you maintain a sustainable low amount of animals that you need to catch. Also, uh, how important is, you know, aside of being healthy, you know, a really, really diverse genetic pool uh, for every generation, you know, like if you need to collect 50, hundreds of specimens like other breeds have done before, or or what the usual export numbers of wildcat, which everyone can look at at the CITES website database. It's hundreds of individuals of a single species, you know, and, and that's just absurd. And uh, I think that it's interesting uh, because I'm guaranteeing that there's absolutely no chance there is over-collection of some frogs. And that is very important. You know, I mentioned Yucumilio, but in the case, for example, of, of Agavicente, it's a highly prized species endemic to Panama. You can only find it in central Panama, both Pacific Caribbean version. And it's really diverse in morphs and locations. Um, you know, it's a species that's endangered because it has habitat fragmentation. You got uh, a lot of habitat degradation for it going on in distribution, which is not a big distribution either. And uh, basically, if you go and collect, you know, 20 individuals from a single uh, population, you could actually affect them, you know, the wild population. Just to get something for the pet trade, I don't see that in a species like, like Vicente or other endangered species that are endemic to the country necessary, you know? And yeah, it's pros and cons. I understand that if you collect 100 species, you can get, you know, a lot more of a genetic pool and diversity for the hobby. But in the other side, I don't think it's worth it when you can just expand continuously your uh, genetic pool by collecting few individuals every year. And also, at the same time, you are checking on the wild populations and checking these populations that you work with periodically and seeing how they're doing and the pressures they have and the population numbers and all of this, which is also part of why I do this. So I work with tree frogs. I work with uh, dark frogs. I'm, I'm more fond of tree frogs than dark frogs, but dark frogs are species that are being highly illegally collected in Panama. Just for you to have an idea, last year, about 400 were seized here in Panama by local authorities. I have 20-something, I think it was 24 the government gave me. Me take care of them, actually breeding them. These are pumilios that couldn't be uh, placed back in their natural habitat because we don't even know where the location is from, you know? Poachers are going faster than scientists. We sometimes can't even tell where they got them from. And I think that it's super important to have this type of methods that are sustainable and that you can just renovate your genetic pool or keep adding to it through time, even though it gives you a slow start. But in the end, you know, it will make the only difference is the time it took you, you know, because I can easily have, I don't know, 500 individuals in three years time than if, if I would have collected, you know, 100 individuals and getting 500 in one year. I think in the end, it's not about time. It's about what you're doing and, and, and really how sustainable you do this type of project. And that's the way I work. And I don't have any plans on changing that. And also, I don't think that, uh, you know, uh, I think that the real important populations are the wild populations. That For me, that's, that's uh, basically a theme. And for me, there's absolutely no justification to 
have a negative have an impact for the world populations it, it's just you know for, for, for breeding frogs in a frog park you know i think that what i need to do is actually help the populations that are in the site you know i was thinking about what you said before about the idea that people have in their heads that somehow we're, we're creating this arc that's going to magically go back and repopulate all the areas where the species have been lost habitat or whatever. And obviously, I mean, yeah, obviously exactly. I, I agree with you. That's, it's really just kind of a, it's kind of foolish. I mean, I can't imagine any, I, I've even spoken to scientists about this and that this, there's no way that anyone's ever going to do that. I mean, plus the other thing is by it, by the time we got to that point where we were that desperate, there really wouldn't be any habitat left anyway. There probably wouldn't even be any petri left, you know? So I think that the genetic pool priority is actually on the wild populations, not on the captive populations for the petri. Not saying that you don't need to have healthy lines or that you cannot add to the genetic uh, pool uh, every so often, like I do every year, for example, but you have to do it sustainable, you know, getting signal. You know, I can just, in 10 years, if you got six every year from a single location, that means that you have already gotten 60 out. It's the only difference is that you didn't get 60 in one day. So what difference does it really make for, for you know, and especially if you compare it with the issue of helping the world population stay as healthy as possible because they really need it. I think that the reason... The reason that people, I mean, I can't speak for everybody. I can only just speak for myself, and this is just kind of what I think about it. Here in the United States, places like the United States, Canada, etc., I think that the reason that we're kind of obsessed with the idea of maintaining a diverse gene pool in captivity is because in our mind, we don't know when all this could just stop one day. And I think that our intention may be, at least in part or perhaps in whole, is that the idea is if we can become completely cut off from any type of imports at all in the future, we would have to have our own hobby be self-sustainable. And how long would that last given the genetic diversity that we have presently here? I mean, you tell me what your thoughts are, but that's the only way that I could kind of rationalize it from like hobbyists here in the U.S. I mean, again, it's just my personal thought on it, but I mean, what do, what do you think about that thought process? Do you think that that kind of feeds into some of that appetite for genetic diversity? I mean, it, it probably is one of the drivers, but I, I still think, you know, if, if you really think about it, you know, would, is it really worth trying to have this super diverse uh, genetic pool in case you need to be uh, self-sufficient because the pet trade somehow stopped the imports in your country for some reason. You know, is it really worth it to damage that genetic pool? Because the cost of having a greater pool instantly or fast in, in the hobby is reducing that of the world population. So is it really worth it? I think that it's not, because the real the problem and what's driving the, the pet trade to this type of uh, situations in which this could happen is actually doing that. You know, it's not it's being not sustainable. It's having this insatiable appetite. This is is the cost on wild populations, and and that's what people really have to talk about and focus on. Because if if wild populations around the globe are healthy, are well, there's you know we're managing our resources better. Uh, 
there's no reason why people would start telling you that having frogs or importing frogs is a problem, so let's ban it. There's a reason why people are advocating for this, and it's precisely because of that behavior. So I think that, on the contrary, the best way to prevent a, a problem in the hobby, for example, in the States, is preventing a ban. And one of the reasons, the, one of the ways to prevent a ban is to actually drive or, or, or take the hobby into a conservation-friendly uh, and sustainable-friendly uh, hobby. I agree. I think that that's a great way to go about it. It's it's just that it's it can be such a well. It's not as as tough as it once was, but it can be hard to explain to someone. I mean, again, like out outside of this whole rabbit hole that we all live in. But I feel like if we could convince people in the greater community, in the the general public, people who really aren't too familiar with what we do, that we funnel a lot of money back into conservation and. Hopefully, at some point, I'd like to think that we funnel more funding back into conservation than any other group out there. You know what I mean? So, if we in the hobby are the ones putting the most money back into conservation, uh, I keep saying conversation, excuse me. If we're the ones putting the most money back into conservation, I can only see that as just lending the hobby even more credibility because then it's going to show that we're good stewards of the very resource that we enjoy so much. Exactly. That's, you know, if you really love an animal or a species, you love keeping it, you truly love it, you should also be loving and caring for its wild populations. You know, it's, it's, it's how sad, and, and most, I know most animals, people don't think animals, you know, it's, have this rational think about stuff, but if they could, you know, imagine you telling your, your red-eyed tree frog in your house, you know, hey, you know, today I read in the news that your species is now extinct in the wild. You know, would that be nice for your pet? And would it be that nice for you? I don't think it would. I think it's it's a key point is is that. And, and I'm sorry if I'm mentioning this too much, but I'm going to say it again. The wild populations are the populations that truly matter. So if you really care and like a species, you should find a way, you know, to help this, this, this wild populations or, or or the, the species in their native habitat. Yeah, fortunately, many of the people in the... I mean, I know this... Again, I always say that... Everyone always says that I, I hit really hard on the dart frog hobby because it's... Look, it's in my comfort zone. It's generally what I, what I discuss most. But at least in the dart frog world, I can say that the people that I've gotten to interact with, many many of the I've had on my show, many of them you know, larger vendors and even small vendors as well, have made it their business to give something back to conservation, whether it's a portion of their sales or whether it's some sort of fundraising or some sort of giveaway or something like that. And I feel like if that was to permeate into every other hobby, I guess in the exotics world, it would lend a lot more credibility to it and just make us look better in the public eye. So it's nice to see that that exists in the dart frog hobby, but I'd like to see that also carry over into other exotics hobbies as well, because for all intents and purposes to the general public, to, to a, a politician or a, uh, I don't like to pick anybody out, but let's just say someone who's not in, in this whole world, you know, someone who restores classic cars or someone who uh, goes hot air ballooning, something like that, someone who has no idea what this hobby is about, they're going to lump us all together into one group. So if this attitude can radiate outwards from 
just a few individuals, a few entities, and permeate the rest of the hobby where people keep animals in general. I mean, my hope is at least that would that would do much better for us because if we don't change directions and go in a, and go in a way that is not only sustainable but shows that it's sustainable to the general public, well, we could we could be in for a rude awakening. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think that's exactly where it's it's the same idea. I have. And you're right. There's a lot of people in the dark rock uh, that are doing things right, especially in the United States. And and uh, I think that we have a chance of changing this and also having this replicated in other uh, you know areas of the pet trade also. And you know, it's funny because you mentioned that maybe people. I'm sure some people are having a hard time listening to me, you know, because, you know, this guy's a pet trader where he's talking about the pet trade, but it's because we have to, you know, look at ourselves and see how we can be better, right? And if you make a Google search, the pet trade, you know, these two words, you're going to get the first, I don't know, 100 pictures out of illegal pet trade. You know, and you're searching just for pet trade. And that's something that I think that's the mirror that we have to look at. You know, we have a tough, our road to walk. We have a lot of things to change, but you know we have to do it by ourselves. And it's definitely an uphill battle. I can, I can say that. It's interesting because if you go to a reptile expo, I, I mean, I'm assuming you guys don't have them there in Panama, based on what you, you know what you told me before. But reptile expos in the, here in the U.S. are it's a huge endeavor. It's you'll get thousands of people, thousands. But when it comes to the more focused groups about like what you're talking about with me the numbers aren't as big so it's i mean i'm sure you agree with me that it's important to engage as wide an audience as as possible so that this becomes the norm and not just the exception you know what i mean you don't have a group of 20 people talking about this you have a group of 2000 people talking about it yeah i i I think that uh I think that it's uh, no, but actually, you know, it, I think that's already happening. You get more people talking about it, more people discussing it, and you go to, in the case of frogs, you go to amphibian forums, and there's a lot of talk. You know, are frogs being sourced? Are the, there are some threats or, or forums have threats on the conservation status of species and, and all of that? So I think that it's a matter of time, but I think we have to work it down to the consumer level. You know. Is, is that uh, having these people that go to the local stores, you know, the average stores in, in the state, um, and, 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 you know, ask the clerk, if I buy this, something going to help? Oh, you know, I think we have to change that, you know, have a more humane and more uh, purposeful way of the way we buy pets. Yeah, that in and of itself is a whole... We could spend hours talking about that. I I don't know. I, I just feel like the more of a vested interest you have in something, the more you're willing to take care of it. You, you know what I mean? Like if you say, you know, say you're nine years old and you beg your parents for a bike all year or you're begging them for a year and, and finally you get it. I'd like to think that you're going to take good care of it. You know what I mean? Because you have a vested interest. You have a vested interest in it. Or if you, a better example would be if you worked for it, you know, you got a summer job and you're working, you bought yourself a bike, you'd have more of a vested interest in it. But I feel like one of the things that, that kind of muddies the waters here in the U.S. is that 
people who keep animals without doing a lot of research and kind of just want that quick fix of getting something and then kind of figuring out what went into its care or what went into its acquisition after the fact. So that's going to be something that's going to be, that's going to take a bit, a bit of work, you know what I mean? To get people. Yeah, it from, is. It is. Yeah. To, I think that's, I think that's the next step. I think that's, uh, we've, you know, and I'm going to say this collectively, people that are doing, you know, a better and good pet trade, uh, which I know we are many uh, today and every day we're increasing, but, uh, you know, we've done a great job, you know, yes, showing the people the source of the animals, showing the, do you have everything you need in order to keep it well, uh, you know, a lot of work on ethical breathing and all of this, but I think that, yeah, as you're saying, the next step, which is that we're talking about, right? It's going to take a lot of effort, you know, to do. And more people, uh, you know, talking about it. I don't know if I'm the first person in your podcast that, you know, speaks about it, you know. But but I think that the conversation is to go on. A lot of people should, you know, this should be like a core part of, of, of the trade. And not only with frogs or reptiles. Well, that's one of the, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show was so we could we could talk about this. I mean, this is uh, I mean, I personally try to be a good steward, and I know for a fact that many of the people that I interact, I, most if not all the people that I interact with, advocate for being good stewards of this hobby in a way that it reflects well on it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I understand. So I'm curious about your first export into the United States. I know you partnered with someone, pretty big company here. Do you want to kind of walk us through what it's like doing your first export and then what we in the U.S. can expect to see from you in the near future? Okay, so yeah, I, I partnered with, for my first export, I partnered with Josh's Frogs. And, you know, I, I need to give them a big shout out. Uh, they've they help conservation in Panama. They they donate funds. They they uh, you know make grants for conservation internationally. Yeah, Panama Eva has won some of those grants also. But I think that uh, uh, you know, Precious Frog is actually trying to do all of these things we're talking about. You know, drive the drive the pet trade on another way and that's more sustainable and they have the same vision for the future for the pet trade that I have. And I think that it was a great partnering with them because knowing that, you know, it's difficult in, in a country like Panama. And and you know, it, it's difficult because you're like fighting against uh the stream or the, the current. And it kind of has been great. They have helped me, you know, do the first expert in, even I had some problems with it in, in the sense of the timing uh, the amount of frogs I could produce at first and they have really been uh, a great help to me in that sense and I wouldn't be able to survive as a project without them that I can say I don't know if a lot of people would have behaved the way they did with me but uh, great shout out to them but yeah I send them uh, for example red eye tree frogs that are from Panama most of the red eye tree frogs I'm, I'm going to talk about a global scale, and you can confirm this on the CITES database of exports from Latin America and the distribution con areas of the frog. Most of them are wild caught, actually. That's where you get 
a lot of them like sheep and adults. I don't know how much of it goes to states, though. I don't have that data. And there is a lot that's captive bred. There is a lot that's being bred in the states because these are very prolific crops. But most of these populations are from Costa Rica. And the Panamanian ones are different. Uh, and this is why I decided to work with this species also, because it's a species that I can track. We have different populations in Panama that have different colors, different eye colors, or blotches. And, and, you know, it's the same good, easygoing, breaded tree frog that just looks cooler, depending on the site that, that you get. And this way I can track. Because one of my fears with these highly popular species that are traffic, highly traffic or, or, or you know, a part of the legal period, is legalizing them. And I was very excited to send them quite a few of, of my frogs. And if somebody claims now that they have one that comes from that, you know, import into the States, uh, they can actually prove it. But you know, showing me how the frog is, you know, a picture of the frog, I would definitely tell if it's from mine or not. And that's, I think it's also, adds to traceability. Um, but in the future, I think I'm going to concentrate more in dark frog because it's, you know, it's been really tough for me to start, you know, three months before the pandemic. Uh, economically speaking, it was really, really difficult. And I think that as I have a small space right now, I have a hundred meters square only to work with. I'm thinking of expanding and everything, but dark frogs are like more, uh, how can I say, more efficient because they occupy less space, and you can actually, uh, you know, compensate for space by having more high-end product. So what you can expect from me in the future and and uh, I think I'm going to be exporting again to Joseph Brock in April, May, probably, uh, or at least that's my plan, <laughs> is um, dark frogs like Ophaga pumilio, Ophaga vicentei, uh, dendrobitis oratus from different colors. Panama has many different uh, morphs of dark frogs. And I think that's what I'm going after now, also because they need more attention. These are frogs that are being poached. There is high demand for it. And nobody is legally uh, doing it. And uh, yeah, I think that my friends at Joseph Brooks clearly understand this, and and I think we're on the same boat. I think uh, people can, can take a look at, at what they have from Panama in their online store, also, so you can check those related to frogs. I'm just curious if you could elaborate a little bit more. You mentioned that they're they look a little bit different. The the uh, red eye tree frogs from Panama. Yeah, so we have populations that uh, have redder eyes, some have like almost black eyes, uh, some have like spots. I don't know if you've seen uh, Spurrell's uh, Spurrell tree frog or the gliding frog, for example, that they, in, in the back it has like a lot of spot spotting. Well, we have populations of, of red tree frog that have those spotting on the back. Uh, we have some that the sides and the legs are all blue and no orange on their bodies, or where where the orange was is only blue. And then we have some that are almost entirely green, and some are olive green, some are lime green, and it depends on on where you get them from. So it's high variability in in Panama in different locations. And 
being able to choose which localities I'm breeding from helps me trace where my animals are or which are descendants of mine. So nobody can just like come and claim that these frogs originally came from natural times, whatever, and then the frog is like Costa Rican one, you know, or, <laughs> or the the ones in 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 uh, Nicaragua, for example. And I I in my Instagram uh, at the frog breeder, I post quite a lot of pictures of this actually, and and uh, you guys can just take a look and see what I mean when they're very different each population one from another. So. I'm going to be like working on one locality or one more per export because I won't be using that much space in my small uh, facility just to breed thousands of red trifles because I need to compensate with the dark frogs until I move to a larger place. But you can expect to see more uh, different colors of red frogs as time goes on in the state. And I also plan to work with other tree frogs. I have hourglass tree frogs. I also have more of hourglass tree frogs that are only to Panama. I have uh, plans to work with uh, uh, Crucio hyla, that's gaudy leaf frogs. Uh, but these are frogs that are extremely rare to find in Panama. So I'm still looking for some more parentals uh, because I am really fond of tree frogs more so than dark frogs. But it's just, they require so much space, you know, they lay 120 eggs, some species, you know, 500 eggs. I have, I don't know if, if you know the mast tree frog. And I have some pictures of this also in my Instagram. The mast tree frog is uh, Melisca feyota. I have a morph that's completely blue. <laughs> and it's just awesome. It's a super blue, like cyan uh, tree frog that I'm breeding right now. I still haven't sold any. I'm going to sell from from F2, but uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking for, for uh, you know, when, when you collect few parentals like I do, and then you just collect some more when you want to increase in it or whatever, you take the time to also choose the best individuals possible, not just collecting anything, you know, and this allows you to make really, really good lines that you can trace, and I think that this is also part of the future of the trade, you know animal trust traceability it's almost like having a pet it's almost like having a pedigree yeah because you cannot in the case of amphibians you cannot ship them you cannot tattoo them I, you could but i would definitely be against it toe clipping you know it's not even in science that's done anymore you know for like biological service uh, uh, so i think that one of the things is you know uh, uh, having these lines and, and detail them as much as you can when you export. Well, we're kind of winding down towards the end, Sam, but I wanted to ask you one last question. If things go, well, I should say, in a perfect world, if everything goes the way you have it planned, where do you see yourself and everything that you're working with in five years? Well... Oh, and if everything goes like I plan, hopefully it will. I see myself in five years having like a bigger facility that's not only dedicated to captive breeding for selling, but for research. And I see myself having a lot of uh, private research areas. I don't know if people know this or I think you are familiar with this, but the main threat, not only for frogs, but for every species in the planet, is habitat loss. 
species, even on top of climate change. Habitat loss are animals, especially land animals, are losing habitat at uh, high rates and just increasing uh, day by day because humans occupy, occupy more space. And the need for private research, because it's a lot faster to start a private research than have been a, like a, a governmental research for protected areas, it's just not fast enough. All the bureaucracy for it. So one of my main plans is having a lot of protected areas that I can uh, make sure that these habitats can be maintained. And in small countries like Panama, this is the thinnest part of the Mesoamerican corridor, which is already uncommunicated now. Uh, it's I think it's key and, and it's super, super important to do so. So that's how I see myself, you know, and, and, and being able to fund my own research and fund research for others and helping the existing conservation projects in Panama to uh, get some funding and also doing a lot of in-situ conservation projects, all funded by natural plants. That's, that's the whole point of what I'm doing. Well, you're doing great work, I will say, Sam. I, um, I'm, I'm glad that we got a chance to talk because there's definitely definitely a lot to think about. I, I, I like to get people's perspectives. I mean, obviously, you're, you're there. You're in Panama. And I, I've had guests from South America on a couple of different times. And it's amazing the perspective that you get from someone who's actually living there with these frogs in front of them every day as opposed to someone like myself. I mean, I'm in the U.S. I'm as far as you could possibly be from these things. So, I mean, there's this... The concerns and everything you have, it's just, um, it's it's just, it's incredible, you know what I mean? That um, we're going in this direction now where we're trying to completely avoid the whole poaching, black market smuggling situation altogether in favor of something that's more responsible and more sustainable. I mean, I could just imagine, I mean, just, I guess, hypothetically, if you wanted to conserve an area for biocommerce, it would seem a lot more profitable than, you know, I mean, I guess if an area is worth more worth more for biocommerce than it is for farming or agriculture, you're going to get to maintain the natural environment there and still make some sort of a, of a return on it, which I guess could only be a good thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, and, and, and I thought on that, you know, Panama is a country that, you know, we're not great producers of food, you know, and cattle or, or any of this, but yet the main, you know, like the main thing that somebody here in Panama would do once they buy land is put cattle, you know, and basically it's a crime because you're deforestating and destroying the, the most diverse zone of the planet, the, the neotropic, just to put a cow there. It's like, come on, there's so many other stuff you could do that are sustainable that will help the environment. People just don't think about it because one of the main challenges developing countries have is environmental education is telling the bottom line is how do you explain uh, my people how do I explain to other Panamanians that what we have is worth something you know if you don't do if you don't tear it down to put some cows it's worth it's worth more than your cows how do you explain that to people and that's something that that's a challenge that natural tanks has in Panama and that we're really trying to do it. Well, Sam, if anyone wanted to find you on social media or uh, learn more about everything uh, like EVAC or, or Park, I know mean, oh, you're not really with Park too much, but 
What are some resources that people could look for? Okay, so uh, you can you can look for uh, Evac Foundation on on Instagram. Um, from there, you get access to all the links of, of Evac. Um, and also, if you go to the to the Evac website, uh, let me give you guys evacfoundation.org. You could uh, even get to their link on on you know donating them the golden frog and, and uh, the other species we have really need your help. Uh, you have right now the pandemic has uh, basically cut off our, our budget a lot. Right? It's, it's difficult. And if you want to get to my information, you can find me on Instagram at Natural Time, and you could also see my page, which is more active. My my personal like Instagram blog is at Daffrock Breeder, and I even do lives that people can just ask questions and see how I work and, and, and see how my how my frogs are being set up, and I answer different questions. Uh, people people have many questions on the morphs, the localities, the species that I have, and everything. So I answer them in these lives. And sometimes they provide questions. So I think that Active Frog Breeder is your best bet. But to get like more content and more interaction, it would be that one. And I'm going to have to have you on again at some point to do a follow-up and see how all this is going. Well, let's see. You know, uh, I'm thinking of doing uh, on racing. Well, I need to describe some of other species. And, well, uh, doing this takes a lot of resources. You need to send samples to the states and everything. So I'm trying to, to start the fundraising. Maybe people that like the dark frogs will probably cooperate, you know, and, and uh, help me assess conservation status of different populations of Opaga in Panama, which are really not. So uh, Panama is the most diverse country in Opaga, and I think this is very important research that has to be done. So yeah, I would post all of that, and maybe we can talk about that. Yeah, it'll be a, it'll definitely be a great topic. I'm, I'm having you back. I'm definitely having you back, so there'll be, well, uh, there'll be plenty for us to talk about. All right, everyone. I want to thank Sam for coming on and talking to us tonight. It's uh, it's a lot to take in. You know, there's um there's a lot of changes that we can make to just make the hobby more appealing to the to the outside world, I guess you could call it, and really to make it more sustainable for ourselves. There's a lot of stuff going on legislature wise, at least here in the U.S. And I, I know in other countries it's it's changing or it's it's uh, you know. So we want to put our best foot forward and. Uh, you know, people like Sam are doing, you know, putting in the good fight. So I hope you guys check out Sam's Instagram page, check out the EVAC foundation as well. And, uh, you know, other than that, uh, it was a great episode. I always learned a lot. Hope you guys did too. And I'll catch up with you all again soon.